Hi, my name is Stevie Ray Kazi. And I'm Gretchen SB. And you're listening to Exceptionally Average Authors Explain It All. Where two exceptionally average authors talk about stuff. Dogs are better than people. That's that's legit. And then there's a bit on uh, the strays of Japan and some of the laws that were put into place to protect them. There's a bit on Alexander the Great and how he named a city after his dog. <laughs> they have stuff about like extinct types of dogs. Freud, he fell in love with dogs at 70, like way late in his life. And he eventually got his own dog, which was a chow. And that made me happy because Bernie is part chow. And he started taking her to session. And he was one of the first people to note that there was a therapeutic presence that dogs provide. And at the time, he had jaw cancer. So he was really bad about keeping time. Um, but the dog learned how to time the session. And she would cue the patient to leave. Interesting. So fascinating, right? He didn't train her to do it. She figured it out, which is very chow. Yeah, my husband did not train our dog to do it. But if he is in the back of the shop, either stalking or grabbing something, or, you know, grabbing something to eat, like any of those things in the back of the store. If a customer comes in, despite the fact that there's a bell on the door, if a customer comes in and he is not there, she gives like one or two rapid barks, gets up and barks at him like, hey, hey, there are customers. You got to come up here. Right, hey. I'm here. You're supposed to be paying attention to your job. Yeah. Yep. She's like a supervisor who naps throughout the day. It's my favorite. You should dress her up as a Triceratops from Dinosaurs for Halloween. <laughs> She's afraid of <laughs> Halloween costumes we've tried. <laughs> but how great would it be if she wasn't, though? Can you see it in the shop? Santa Claire! <laughs> well, other than your infinite new knowledge about dogs, what have you been up to this week? Several weeks since we recorded the last episode. It's been almost a month. Oh, man. Where did the month go? I don't know. Uh, okay. Let's see. What have I been up to? I am still working on Quarantined with a Beast, and it's so delicious. I'm so excited because this time <laughs> I'm doing all the themes on purpose. And um, it totally is one of those things where sometimes you write to market and sometimes you write to yourself. Mm -hmm. And I get to do both this time. Oh, that's um, nice. Oh, yeah. So I'm really enjoying it. It's going at a slower pace than than I would prefer or than I like had set a goal for. But the quality... Like, I'm so proud of this story, and that doesn't happen to me during the process very often. Oh. So. Yay! Yeah, that, and um, I celebrated my 10-year wedding anniversary, which is a separate adventure. Aww. My love story is my favorite one. <laughs> Barf. 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 You know what? We went hiking, and it was ridiculous and wonderful. Aww. No, and this is just 10 years married, not 10 years since you've been together, right? No, 10 years married. We've been together for 12 years. Mm. Dang. Yeah, I know, like a whole lifetime for at least one of my children, two of them. <laughs> well, it was I mean, cool. we got to, you know how that works. Do is, um, there, we had a bottle of wine from the winery he took me when we were first dating. And we came back with a bottle of wine from the year that my oldest was born because I was a single mom when we met. Yeah. And so we got to open that. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, it's the oldest wine I've ever had. <laughs> and it was good. And it was, so, and it was very sweet. It was like, for being stuck, you know, in quarantine and not having a lot of options. Not that historically we've done much without the kids. We had originally intended to hike Grove of Patriarchs um, because his grandfather had recently passed. And so it was kind of like an, 
homage to where he came from and the family that we've built together, mm-hmm. which was kind of neat. Um, but it was super crowded. And so we ended up not. We ended up continuing to go and just picking something at random. Um, and it turned out to be a hike that I looked up when my son was born and figured I would never be able to do because I couldn't imagine doing it with the kids. Oh. And we made it almost all the way to the saddle together. So it was cool. Oh, that's it nice because then you're crazy. creating a new adventure together. Totally. Because it's uh, like 1.3 miles one way and there's a thousand feet of elevation gain from that one mile. Dang. And it's at happening, like, the, the peak of it is at 6,000 feet. So you're working with thin air, and we're all wearing masks. And I ha- I didn't know any, any of those things when we walked into it. We were just like, let's see how fun this is. Yeah. Which is how we make most of our choices in life. This time it paid off, so it was cool. That's nice. I'm, I'm yeah. glad you guys were able to get out safely. Me too. Me too. Uh, we found that um, the key seems to be... Find two trails close to each other, one that has water and one that doesn't, and pick the one that doesn't. Everyone's going to the water. That makes sense. <laughs> this is I go I go to Magic Land every time we hike. This is why I do it. It it feeds my creativity. Makes sense. Yeah. I oh I got to use this one on that one hike we went on because my teenager you know would prefer to stay home and read about hiking, <laughs> um, or adventures or anything as much much as I was at that age. And they have this little ring on their hand that it's like a fidget ring. It's a spinner one. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was hot and miserable. And they didn't want to wear it. But they didn't have pockets. But they didn't have a backpack. And they wanted somebody else to carry it. And this whole time, they're just like, someone take it. And finally, I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I was like, if Roto can carry it to Mordor, you can wear it one hike. <laughs> Nobody's going to help you. Just wear it. Oh my gosh! <laughs> they oh man they about they had the same reaction he did. <laughs> and then they were like, "That's the second favorite thing you've ever said on a hike to me." Yeah. <laughs> what have you been up to? Not a heck of a lot. I've just been working day job work because we are building the schedules for winter quarter right now, and we are dealing with all the fallback from fall quarter because of you know, still being in the midst of COVID. And so I've been, the last couple of weeks has just been work and then nothing else. So I haven't gotten any fiction writing done in any of my stories, but I have been world building, which is a good segue into our topic for this week for a series that shouldn't exist because, you know, we've been over this. We keep telling my subconscious to not build more series but it has decided that it wants to do a bunch of short stories because attention spans writers and readers. Good, I think that's a good shift in focus for right now, though. That one makes sense. Yeah. 72 things doesn't make sense to me. But, but it's 110. It's 110, the to-do list. You, you've broken it. What did you do? <laughs> and I think I've done This is why 32. no one can leave you alone. We have to record more. Well, when I decided that I wasn't going to do the steamy romance novellas, I was like, okay, well, I need to redo my to-do list. And then I was like, oh, on this to-do list, I divvied out chapters of the serialized story I was doing, and I did write for all of them, but I didn't do edit for all of them, and I am editing the chapters. So I was like, I should get credit for this work that I'm doing anyway. So every time I write two chapters, edit them, and put them up, it crosses off two things on the list instead of one. So that double part. Why didn't you put put it up on your list then? I have no idea. 
Because you could be crossing out one more thing every time. Yeah, it's up now. That's the kind of to-do list I can get behind. <laughs> it's it's up now, and I added a bunch of Lantern Lake novellas. And if I don't get those done, I don't get them done. Like that's the last part. The last like fifteen items, if I don't get them done, is not the end of the world. They're like bonus points. And I, I mean, also it may added be the end of the world regardless of whether they get done. We don't get to control that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I've been world building. I have found it harder to world build just staying at home, which, you know, makes me understand more why you'd like going on those hikes so much yes. because it is a nice to recharge your batteries because I'm doing the world building on this short story and I am basing it on the main character on a less gruff version of my spouse and Mm -hmm. because I thought it would be funny does he know no Mm -hmm. and (laughs) uh, and similar to his work situation because my husband works he's a manager in retail this person owns a retail shop and so I'll be able to like put in some of the the jokes and cracks that he makes only it's going to be supernatural Well, the problem is that since I'm not going to retail locations, I'm not interacting with individuals, the building of that world keeps like sputtering and stopping. And then, yeah, it's been much harder to world build being at home. And I didn't think that that would be an issue. Like, I don't know whether I have to retrain my brain or what, but it's been interesting to try and build that whole world when my brain isn't busy doing other things because I'll be at work normally and all of a sudden my brain will go what if we do this and then my creativity Mm -hmm. wanders back to whatever dark corner it usually is in and Mm -hmm. I'm like oh okay well now that's in my conscious mind I'll make a note (laughs) right and it's been really interesting and I I wonder whether other people are having that same problem or whether they're just like nah it's fine no I definitely am struggling more creatively from not getting out and that kind of ropes in our interview for this episode with our author friend, Elizabeth. She is very prolific in that she does artistry work and comics as well as books. So Stevie interviewed her this week to find out how she does her world building and if world building is different when you're doing comics, especially as an artist and you're not writing those comics. And so it gives us a really cool insight to how the world is different and how wide world building actually is there's no one right way to do it so we'll see you back after the interview i will say starting my own podcast it was definitely uh interesting learning everything that i had to learn to figure it out yeah tell me about that so what i'm doing is i'm i took more of the characters from immortal house and norma's cleaning service so the characters that didn't have books basically and i started writing i had so much information so many short stories or scenes that I could create short stories out of. And so I took the vampires of the Paper Flag Consortium and I basically decided that Loretta was going to write and then record the initiation topics that you need to know. And so she talks a little bit about a topic. For example, next week's topic is about reinvention in a vampire's existence. And then she tells the story of her firstborn show and how he has, you know, had three jobs in his 132 years of existence. And then she answers questions. Oh, and then there's always a commercial from a paper flag consortium business. And that's, and it's uh, bi-weekly. It comes out on 
the first and third Friday. I guess that's <laughs> that's basically what it's about. It's about vampires. Um, let's tell us a little bit about Immortal House and how you did some of the the world building for that, so that the okay. people listening can know a little bit about the world and then how it spun off. Okay. So first of all, Immortal House is the story of a vampire looking for the perfect house in Seattle in 2018 and he has a budget so when i'm creating something that's in a real place like seattle i always think of what i want people to know about my city obviously if the the book isn't set in my city it's different but living in seattle there's a lot of seattle things like the seattle freeze or different things that bring out the culture of seattle and so i really think about like what do i want even though lawrence is a vampire and lawrence has his own issues of being a vampire in seattle Basically, what real facts about Seattle do I want to add? And most importantly, what facts will push this plot of Lawrence buying a house forward, right? Mm-hmm. And then since he's a vampire, what places has he been besides Seattle? And what bits of like real culture can I add in to give it more of a sense of place? And so I started there. And then I thought of because Lawrence has a budget and that means certain neighborhoods in Seattle, he's just not going to find a house in. Also, what are the cultures of those neighborhoods that he can't afford? What do they feel like when you walk inside them and when you're walking down the street? What does it feel like at night when you're walking down the street? What is it like to walk into a condo building compared to a single family home? These are all the sort of things that I'm adding to this specific book. And then and did you did you end up doing home tours when you were researching? No, uh, I put in the home tours that my husband and I could I went on of places we could afford back when we bought our home years earlier. So I didn't go on home tours. I just looked at the numbers of what houses were, what they cost. Uh, I will say my husband worked in real estate and when he was reading Immortal House, he was struck by the accuracy of the market trend in 2018. He was appreciative of that. (laughs) Yeah, like I said, I really thought about what my husband and I went through when we were going buying a house. And then when the universe started to expand, so obviously I just Lawrence buying the house, there's a lot of things that happen in the home buying process. And one of the big things when you have a budget is you have to really watch your spending. Plus, of course, Lawrence has this past and he would know the other vampires in Seattle, right? That in itself would be its own little community uh-huh. uh, within the larger so subculture study. Yeah. And so then I added these other vampires that Lawrence knew. And one vampire in particular, I spent a lot of time on, and that was Norma. And then uh, Norma's guardians, Pascaline and Derek. Uh, for people who haven't read the book, Lawrence at one point was Norma's tutor. She's a too young vampire. And then, but she was, she's not a tragic character like a lot of the two young vampires are. She was like, screw this, I'm going to grow up. And so she did as best as she could. She's in a mortal house, and I always knew she should have her own book. And so I wrote Norma's Cleaning Service, which is a series of cozy mysteries. And then all of a sudden, I had even more information. And I knew after writing Norma's Cleaning Series, I would write at least a few books of the ancient vampires of Agatha and Jacob, and then of Pascaline, Charles, Loretta, and Derek. Um, They're the six oldest vampires in Seattle. They're the ones that came from Europe and settled in Seattle. And so I knew I was going to write that story. And I wrote Agatha's story, and I wrote Jacob's story, and both of them are published. And then I was sort of stuck again and not quite sure, like, what to do with all this. I kind of had information overload. And Mm -hmm. then... Of course, the other thing that happened, which is a more personal thing, but also personal for all authors, is that all of our event schedules shut down. Yeah. And I was feeling very, I realize I'm in the middle of a city, but I was feeling very um, isolated here in, in Seattle. So I decided to push forward this idea of this podcast and just do it. And if I 
you know, gave a few spoilers for upcoming books, well, then I do. I mean, it's not going to be like, it's just history. A lot of audiences love that, like the Easter eggy type things. Yeah. And so all the stories are as historically accurate as I felt comfortable portraying. There are plenty of things that I didn't, I don't feel like I should, I feel like, especially where I am right now as a person, I should not be writing certain things because it's just going to make me sad. I think, you know, to a certain extent, I think we all feel that a little bit right now. Yes. But so when I wrote Honor Among Vampires, the main character's name is Agatha, and she's the oldest vampire in Seattle. And she is the non-inheriting daughter of a count who is married to a non-inheriting son of a count. And this means her children are commoners. So it's really important to her to leave an inheritance. The reason why I'm bringing all this up right now is I was trying really hard to put in Romanian culture from the 16th century. Mm-hmm. There's very certain things that I left in and things I took out. But like one of the big ones that you would see is Agatha and her sister-in-law and then the cook are running the bread ovens. Because back then, only the rich people could afford to bake bread. And so they baked bread for everybody in the entire village. And it's one of the things that she does as a lady in this county. And uh, so that was like one of those things that you like slide in that I knew I wanted to put in the book. And that has to do with world building. And it makes the book feel real and set into a a real place. Even though there are plenty of other things that I just either gloss over or it just doesn't follow the plot. Like it just doesn't matter because... The plot doesn't go there because the plot is going to be that Agatha gets attacked by a vampire, right? So the rest of her life, as important it is to her, doesn't matter to the book. So one of the things that, as much as I'm sort of rambling on about this, is one of the things that I always do when I'm world building is I always think about what the character is going to run into. Because otherwise, it's very easy to get lost in this world that you're creating and still not have a book or a podcast or whatever. Right. So I always go back to the plot of the story. Do you think there's such thing as overdevelopment? Have you found that to be something that you can do? Well, no, not if you decide you're going to like then write a podcast with all these extra characters. It seems like you started out with like, oh, no, I've done too much. And actually, I can use this, though. Yeah. I guess the only thing I would say with overdevelopment is as long as you have a vision of what the author or artist wants to create, and then you come away with a project that actually finishes, then I don't see how anyone is overdeveloping, right? Like, oh, you're still creating the project you want to, and then you can always take this extra stuff and put it somewhere else. Yeah. But I have seen people who get really upset. In fact, this is something that happened to me at a panel once. Someone got really upset when I'm like, yeah, I mean, all this world, this hundred pages of world building is great, but that does not bring you to a story that anyone wants to read because there's no characters in that, right? Like unless the world itself is a character, you still have to work around the characters and the plot. And so you really think you can necessarily overdevelop, but I do think that sometimes people get trapped in world building. Mm-hmm. You have all this stuff and so much ideas that you want to put in your book, but really it doesn't need to be there. Remember, sequels are a thing. Websites right. Well, and-, and it also, I think for me, it triggers like, what is our definition of world building? Because if world, bu- you know, where are we world building? Maybe it's not too much world building, but is it in the appropriate part of the world? Is this a world we're going to see? Yes, exactly. You know, if- I sometimes think like world building should be almost what's going on behind, like, like if you're in a play and you see the sets moving, it should feel seamless. And the part that the that the reader should see 
is probably not nearly as much information as you've got. <laughs> so the other thing that you do, you, you've you done novels, obviously, and you're doing the podcast, but you've also worked with comics. How is it different to world build for a comic series than it is for a novel? Well, I would say one thing is, uh, separate them just real quick, is that I've illustrated comics that someone else has written, and I've also illustrated my own comics. So uh, when I'm illustrating my own comics, I generally have a good idea of what I want to show people and everything you think of in a comic is visual it's very much like a film that way that that you're planning out a visual medium and everything you see is most likely planned and then of course with a film you have music and dialogue as well but but so there's a little bit when I think of my opening panels which tend to be bigger panels and this isn't just me this is almost every comic book artist you've ever met, uh, there will be a, a lot more detail in these panels. And the reason why is because you want to set the scene immediately. You know, I wrote, I illustrated a book for Jennifer Brozek and it's called The Prince of Artemis Five. And so I was looking at the script and she had said a few things. I thought, okay, cool. What can I add? Oh, she says this room is pretty small and gray because of course this is kind of like on this planet mm -hmm. and and then she said there's a few toys lying around and i'm like okay cool to show what a terrible authoritarian government this is the toys are all going to be marked with the imperial symbol all of the, in fact all the toys that you'll see on the shelf in the background are either soldiers a spaceship and other things that you would think that a kid who's now kind of outgrown them but still kind of displays them in his room would have all of that stuff was very thoughtful both from the script and then what i'm looking at the script and thinking okay now how can i make this individual when i wrote out for souls and cookies it was much more simple uh it was set in seattle so it was like looking out the window or deciding where i wanted the demon dogs to go when i wrote famine lands i specifically was thinking of a northern european looking place and so what the houses would look like and i got pictures of houses back in that time period what did the early castles look like not the big sweeping towers that we see now but the old old ones yeah <laughs> are half underground so i looked at pictures of those to kind of get inspiration of what i wanted this place to look like and then for Lure, which was also set in a real place, I looked at old pictures from the Yukon Gold Rush to ensure that my technology that they were using was correct. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we don't think of technology in the Victorian era, but they certainly had technology. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Where the technology came in, how were the backpacks worn, all those things changed over time. And so I try always to ensure that those things look accurate. I also try to ensure that if it's set in a real place, that costuming is accurate. If it's not, you can do a lot of different stuff. But when it is, I try to make sure costuming is accurate. I think your question was, how is it different than a book, though? And it's actually not. It's just it, the end result's different. One is visual and one is written. One thing that, like, one of the biggest things that, by the way, and I did this too in my first comic script. Like, the first one I wrote, it was bad. <laughs> Uh, you actually see in comics that's really different. In movies, sometimes you have these pauses where people look at each other, mm -hmm. especially in fast scenes, like an action scene, right? Right. But in a comic, you really don't want to do that unless you want someone to be killed. Like if it's a battle scene and someone stops and you are actually stopping the action at that moment um, because it's they're about to die. Is yeah, that a they're, trope? They're dead. <laughs> Is that a comic trope? That's cool. I don't know if it's a trope. But oh, I bet you. I, oh, now I want to study it. Oh, now I want to study it so badly. 
when you're designing a comic book page, mm -hmm. the size of the panels actually have meaning. If the panels are smaller or strange angles and things are turned on its side, it means things are moving forward. So when I say like it's all planned, it's absolutely all planned. The bigger the panel, the slower the person looks at it the, because there's more detail in it. The more dialogue slows people down. So if you're in the middle of a battle and someone, seriously, someone just like said, like there's all of a sudden a big panel and I don't know, you're looking at their face and they're saying something, especially the sword's going to be coming at them and they're going to get knocked down. Like that's just what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. So most summers, obviously not this summer, I have taught like drawing comics or drawing dragons or drawing whatever uh, in different places. And often we talk about comics. Right. And most people don't see, and by the way, this is the same if it's left reading comics or right reading comics. It's just that it's just the way they're placing stuff, right? right? The entire goal is to make the reader enjoy the comic. And so we don't want the reader to have to fight the comic. Right. You want the reader to like flow and the way they flow is through the way the panels are set up. And then you don't want to like bore the reader either. <laughs> so you don't want extra panels that are in the way of things. Um, right. I've seen, sometimes I've seen horror comics go on a little long and you're like, I get it. Right. And so you really want the reader to, like I feel the, the biggest goal for any of it is not only to, for us to tell the stories, but also for the reader or the listener or the viewer to enjoy it and want to consume it and want and to- not have to struggle more. to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and that's one of the things I do in world building too. One of my favorite parts of world building is finding idioms mm. for that time period and what the meanings of the idioms were and why people said it to slide that in there and make it more real. Uh, okay, excellent. Well, the last little notes on here that I have to ask you is what book are you reading? What show are you watching? And what song do you have on repeat? I actually picked out two books that I really like for world building. One is called The Costume History by Augusta Racine. I got it at the Seattle Art Museum during the Pre-Raphaelite exhibit last year. And especially doing all the vampires and going in and out of history, I have okay. used it so much. It was written in the Victorian era, so there is a little weirdness in some of the things. But uh, it, just for the naming of things and the way they were attached to other things, like clothing, it's really great. And then the other one I wanted to say is the Descriptionary. And it's a thematic dictionary. And the subtitle is the book for when you know what it is, but not what it's called. Ah, I need that. It has stuff like from the skeletal system, from parts of a castle to parts of a gun. So I use it a ton. <laughs> so those are two books I love. I will add one more thing, especially for world building. Uh, if you are setting something in a certain year, you mm -hmm. can still get old Sears catalogs or JCPenney's catalogs or whatever. But Sears is great because Sears sold everything, right? Sears 100 years ago was Amazon of today. So I have, and I used it so much, both for the Paper Flower Consortium and then uh, for Lure, the 1903 Sears catalog. It's in black and white. It has a bunch of old pictures in it, but it's really useful for, for world building of a certain era. So if you can find, oh, and I will add one more thing. To just to that which is the other thing which is really cool if you want to like if you're especially if you're just describing someplace you've never been is you can look into old phone books and before phone books just directories and you can get a really good idea what a town was like by the businesses they had in it 
and how many businesses. Yeah, so it's really, really interesting to do that. And that was one of the things I did when I went down to Vancouver to check out some of the old phone books uh, from the fort and then the directory of the town itself. You asked me what I, song I have on repeat. Uh-huh. And I will say I just finished listening to the Black Tapes. Uh, it's not really a song. It's a whole podcast. Um, and I did enjoy it really well. But I love horror. And I really felt like it was kind of like an X-Files, but with demons rather than aliens. Okay, that's and, fascinating. Yeah, through a reporter's lens, not the FBI's lens. But it really felt x filey to me. Yeah. And then the other thing I've been... I just finished is I just finished the Magnus Archives, uh, which is on, which is another podcast that is on uh, break right now, but they'll start again in September. And that's a nor, it's another horror podcast. And this one's more like Etheridge horror, but really delves into people's fears and people's base fears, which is why I love it. Um, <laughs> it does sound like you would love that. Yeah. <laughs> And then for music, I'm just going to glance at my Spotify list. I've been listening to a lot of Coldplay and a lot of um, Monsters and Men. (gasps) Yes. Oh, I have had of Monsters and Men on repeat so hard since lockdown. Yeah. Yeah, me too. This Um, is why I ask people because I'm like, I need to refresh my list. The Wombats. I've been listening to a lot of the Wombats. Um, And before we close out, are there any titles that you'd like to highlight of yours? Is there any... Please listen to the Paper Flower Consortium podcast if you like vampires in real world settings. And then the first book in that series, as in chronologically, is Honor Among Vampires if you want to see a vampire on kind of an adventure. Excellent. The first book written was Immortal House. So that was a super interesting interview for me as someone who doesn't know a lot about comics other than that my kid loves them. And so I had no idea about the symbolism of the size, frequency, and detail in the, like, scene-to-scene shots. Oh, yeah, that was really cool. The way she described action and how you can predict that something is about to come next. It reminded me of, like, a comic book version of Save the Cat. And now I'm super interested to deconstruct patterns. Yeah, it was definitely really, really interesting. And I appreciate, as someone that whose imagination goes like crazy wild in random directions for no reason whatsoever. I appreciate that she talks about how she had all this extra content and so she ended up creating the podcast and going off and doing the series with Norma. And I'm just kind of like, yes. <laughs> this yes, is my mind. These leftover pieces. <laughs> and I thought it was a fantastic testament to her opinion about like what is too much world building because I I tend to fall in that same camp of well how is it being used Mm -hmm. is it something that's going to be usable and if it's extra in this story I think that next step is what else can you do with it and what an innovative way I you know I've never seen that done before yeah well I think that wraps us up for this episode Stevie what are your book recommendation book recommendations uh, uh, for the kind folks at home Oh my goodness. Okay. A very dear friend that I've worked with, um, I, I think you've seen me do some of the sprints and stuff on her author tube is Tamara Woods. Oh, she yes. has a book of poetry called The Shaping of an Angry Black Woman. And the back, it's so cool. So it says that the poetry illustrates the frustration of being placed inside a societal box and the desire to show that black women in particular And all women are more than just characters. We cry, we bleed, we are more than just angry. 
It's super powerful and it tells an overarching narrative, but it's in bite-sized pieces. Mm-hmm. So that is my recommendation. What's your recommendation? My recommendation for this week comes from a conversation Stevie and I had off a uh, podcast. And it is a audiobook that I stumbled upon. There is a non-audiobook version, but I recommend the audiobook version. And that is Mistwick School of Music Craft. And it is a middle grade slash young, young adult book. And it was recommended on Audible, which was why I listened to it. And what makes this book so cute is that it's very much in that Harry Potter type genre where the main character, she gets invited to audition to join this school, Mistwick. And in this world, musicians, I think they call them minstrels, if though, if my memory serves me right, they perform all sorts of magic with their musical instruments. So it's all related to musical instruments. It's really, really cool. And the world is very filled out. And the way she sprinkles the details, the author, uh, of the world throughout the book is delightful. It's not an info dump. It's very much an, oh, so this is okay, this, okay, this. And it's great. And the, I don't want to ruin the book, but it looks like the main character won't get into the school for a good chunk of the book. And they have to go through this whole trial process. And the whole thing is really interesting. And why I recommend the audiobook is because the woman that reads the audiobook is fantastic, but they enlisted a children's uh, orchestra to play all of the spells. So every time they're talking about someone doing a spell or groups of people doing a spell, they'll have music. So there'll be a little music break or there'll be music in the background and it's a children's orchestra. And that just makes a really good book that's being told really well, just over the top fantastic. And that is why that's my recommendation. That sounds delightful in audio form. Like, So next time, we will be doing our last episode on world building. So that's all for us. Happy reading. Bye, friends. Bye.